A major criticism from direct care pundits is the perceived inability of the industry or the movement to scale. Scaling usually means how a company can grow large enough to take over a market. In our case, scaling within direct care means having the capacity and the wherewithal to care for millions or tens of millions of people. This is a tough mission for any one or two companies because the human element is so important in healthcare. Now, scaling within direct care must be accomplished by individual doctors uniting at a local level, joining professional DPC organizations, or as in the case with today's guest, creating their own network of branded direct care practices. Joining us to tell us his story is Dr. Kyle Rickner, physician and founder, Primary Health Partners. From the Freedom HealthWorks Network, this is Healthcare Americana. Today's podcast is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks, a company on a mission to turn healthcare delivery on its head. It works to support all physicians who are interested in direct care, cutting out insurance companies from their practices, and to spread the word of this model to everyone, including employers. For more information on direct care, visit freedomhealthworks.com and by the great people at the Free Market Medical Association. They're connecting true buyers and sellers of healthcare, educating and motivating them to work together based upon mutually beneficial relationship, which is also built on three pillars, price, value, and equality. For more information, visit fmma.org. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Healthcare Americana. I'm joined by Dr. Kyle Rickner, Primary Health Partners. Dr. Rickner, thanks for taking time to talk to us on Healthcare Americana, and thank you for your service as a veteran of the U.S. Army. Oh, Chris, thank you very much. It's great to be here with you and always relish the opportunity to talk about what's going on in the direct primary care space. Now, I want to lead off with a bang here because uh, we've had some good talks here previously. And what we're trying to do is show people that direct primary care and direct care by extension can really be a game changer here for the United States healthcare system. But I wanted to ask you, can direct primary care reach the scale necessary to tip the scales of U.S. healthcare in the free market's favor? So, Chris, that's a, that's a great question. And it's actually one of the major criticisms of people that are analyzing direct primary care. I think the answer to your question is yes, it's just a function of time. Right now, direct primary care represents only about 4% of the U.S. market, and that number alone is not going to be enough to tip any scales. However, this movement is, I would still say, in its infancy and growing all the time. And I've seen so much growth in the four years that we've been doing it. And I think there is definitely a model and a way in place basically to leverage the free market as the vehicle to scale this um, where it's actually meaningful. And that's going to start in local markets and become scalable in local markets before, uh, obviously, it's on a, on a national scale. Right. And you said, you know, create it at the local level there. And I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, I think you might find some argument around there that it does represent 4%. I think a lot of people might argue that it's less than that. And it's growing like wildfire. It really is. And I've seen growth rates of 25, 30, 40% year over year of the number of practices growing and, and in business within the United States. But, you know, beyond the local level, what else really needs to happen? What needs to take place for this movement to either continue to expand at that rate or even grow at a faster rate? Well, I think the fuel for the engine of growth is really the doctors themselves, the providers that are willing as the sellers of healthcare to actively engage the buyers of healthcare. We've had too many middlemen in our system that's made it too complicated and too expensive and frankly, not patient friendly at all. So I think as doctors are willing to take this on and 
work with local markets and make a difference in the local markets, then that, that will just spur on some growth because we know what we do has real value and we bring a lot of value to businesses. And as businesses see that value, there will be others that want that and, and it can be a perpetual cycle of, of growth. But it, it is going to take effort from the, the doctors or the sellers of healthcare. Yeah, and it sounds like those sellers or those doctors need to step outside what has historically been a pretty comfortable zone for them and start learning a little bit more about the salesmanship of healthcare or selling their healthcare services. Do you find that some of your peers are uncomfortable with that type of situation? Oh, absolutely. I think, but it's, a, it's an oxymoron to say it's comfortable because they're not comfortable. They're actually uncomfortable. They're frustrated, um, mm-hmm. overworked. They're, they're just sort of prisoners within a system. So um, there's not a lot of comfort there, but, but they don't know what to do about it. And sort of escaping that and stepping outside of what is known, whether it's comfortable or not, it's definitely known to them and doing that. They just don't have a paradigm to think about how, how else can I do this? And uh, when I talk with physicians about doing it, there's three things that I tell them. One is that you're going to absolutely have transitional risk and there's just no way around that. And you're going to have transitional sacrifice. And the third element you're going to get is fulfillment because we as doctors went into this for the right reasons. And when you start doing things in the right way for the right reasons, you get a lot of fulfillment. That just spills over from the physicians to the patients, and then eventually to if, if you're engaging the employer community, they begin to see it and their employees feel it. And so I'm very confident in the model of care that, you know, it sells itself, and um, the, the physicians coming over and doing it is just sort of a, a fear factor that's going to take some time to get over. And we've already seen a great improvement in that in the last few years. Right. So it sounds like it's the seat that they're on right now is so hot that they're uncomfortable, they're fidgeting because they can't continue going on seeing patients in the current environment that, they are, that they're practicing within. But it's more of that um, not uncomfortable reaching out to other people beyond their, uh, around their practice to look at or explore DPC and make it grow. It's more of a fear of the unknown. But you know, with your help and some of the pioneers out there, um, there's a lot of resources out there because, you know, as you correctly said, medicine's not a career. You know, we always tell people medicine's a calling. And when you have the passion coming through, it makes it a little bit easier because you know what? You know in your heart of hearts that this is the right move here. So I wanted to uh, switch gears here. I want to learn more about primary health partners. So tell us a bit more of your practice. You know, who was involved with you from the start? Uh, when did you guys start and what it looks like today? Yeah, great. Love to. So Primary Health Partners was actually uh, uh, intellectually born out of a uh, national conference in Washington, D.C. in October of 14. So five years ago um, was the first time I had heard of the idea of direct primary care. And one of my good friends and, and partners at the time in, in our corporate medicine practice, we were in that together and we stepped out uh, of, of that session and looked at each other and said, I don't care how we're going to do it, but we're going to do that. And so that was in October of 14. And after a lot of perturbations and uh, studies of best practices, we opened Primary Health Partners in January of 16. And it was just he and I, um, Dr. Robert Lockwood, and we started that. And then we had um, another physician join us six months later 
Katrina Bourne. And then once we realize this is actually working and people are buying in, then we started addressing another of the three pillars that we started with. We wanted to make a difference in the patient experience. We wanted to make a difference for physicians. And then we wanted to make a difference for employers. And so we began to see that we're going to have to be a little bit more geographically distributed. So after being in practice for a year and a half, we sought out another physician to actually open another location, uh, and we opened our second location. And so that process has continued. We now have four locations and 10 providers around the Oklahoma City metro area. That, in fact, was sort of the chicken before the egg scenario that you know, larger employers want to have a distribution and choices for their employees. And um, that's one of the challenges for the single doctor that's out there doing DPC, that getting larger employer groups to join on there, it's, it's really difficult when you're a single doctor in a single location. So that, that's kind of where we're at now. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks for that. And thanks for giving us the history there. And, you know, something that struck me throughout your explanation was that the multi-clinic, multi-branded uh, clinic is relatively rare in the new and innovating business model of direct primary care. Do you find issues with managing that? Uh, multiple offices all underneath the same umbrella. How do you guys keep your sanity? So I find that the only way that can be done is you, you get smart people around you. <laughs> so doctors are not always the best at those things. And uh, I think Robert and I do a pretty good job, but we realized that early on that the limiting factor for our growth could likely be ourselves. And so we were fortunate through leveraging other relationships to get good people um, on board and helping us. And really, to be honest, it was those folks that made the, the growth really happen and manage it. It is a day-to-day -day management thing, and you cannot be a full-time practicing physician and manage all of that. So you've got to have good people and good help all, all around you. So not being a micromanager, not trying to figure out what everybody's doing constantly at all times during the day while seeing patients and caring for people who are trusting you. That's correct. And unfortunately, that's a problem for a lot of doctors. They really are micromanagers and they have trouble letting go. And, and I acknowledge that. I mean, that's some of the personality traits that make them good physicians at times because they're, they're very detail oriented. But uh, Robert and I complement each other really well. And, and we, uh, we got people that we trust uh, in those places. And so that's, that's really what's allowed it to, to grow. And we'll yeah. continue to do so. Yeah, it's kind of business 101. You hire smart people and you let them do their job and you kind of get out of the way and focus on the skill sets that you really excel at. So that's what cool. were the reactions that people had four years ago versus what their reactions are walking into your clinics today? That's a great question because we got looked at like we had a third eyeball four years ago. Uh, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> you know, and we had colleagues that we knew well and trusted that that told us, hey, that, that kind of sounds like it might be a good idea, but you guys are probably too early on this. And, you know, there was a lot of skepticism around what we were doing. I think after being in it one year and it being clear to people around us that, that hey, this is working. And that question left our mind. I mean, I think with anybody starting a business, I mean, there is that question, is this going to work? And that question was answered for us early on. We were like, yes, this is, this is going to work. You know, one of the things that we did that made a difference was we had the technology foundation done ahead of time 
so that the day we opened, we had over 200 people that were already pre-signed up. And so we had revenue come in for us the very first day. And that just created a lot of momentum that we could keep going. Good, good. Yeah, good to hear. So I want to talk a little bit about how you continue to expand your practices and bringing on other talented physicians who really buy into this type of a model. Have you guys had any problems recruiting physicians to man your other clinics? So there's two sides to that answer. There is absolutely no shortage of doctors that are interested and want to do this. I think that takes us back to the, the three things I tell physicians. There's going to be transitional risk. There's going to be transitional sacrifice and there will be fulfillment. And not everybody's at the stage where they're willing to take on those first two. So it's really been a matter of where are doctors? Um, how frustrated are they? How motivated are they to, to make the leap? We have not had difficulty finding a provider yet. In fact, our, our situation is that we you know, when we're ready to add more, we, we already have doctors in the queue who've told us they're ready and waiting. And so we've not met any colleagues that look at the model of direct primary care and go, yeah, I think I like the way I do it better. You know, they all want to do this, but it's, it's a matter of, of getting there. And some of them are, it takes some time and it takes some planning in their personal lives to, to do it. And uh, we're hopefully an encouragement to them. And we try to give plenty of lead time. And then we're able to actually set doctors up for success. It was great that our, our most recent clinic, the doctor, that uh, once he caught the fire and the passion, and that's kind of a key element is like, you have to realize, oh my gosh, this is the way it should be done. And, and they're excited about it and they have that passion. And, and so um, he just opened up a few weeks ago and he had over 300 patients pre-signed up the day he opened his doors. That was fantastic. So we're seeing people really catch the passion and that makes a big difference. Yeah, that's a great success story there. Are you finding that there's a difference when you talk to physicians about maybe joining your ranks or going into DPC? Is there a perception uh, in their mind of it's more risky to start their own DPC versus joining an outfit such as yours? Well, of course. I, I think Robert and I thought early on that um, physicians would want to do that. They would want to have their own thing. And so, our mode of trying to help them was to support that. Well, that quickly we found out that is, that is not true. Most physicians would rather have the infrastructure and everything done for them. And I think that is coming out of this generation of physicians that have been bought into the employee mindset. They go through all these years of hard work. This is the brightest of the brightest, the one percenters, I call them, in, in education. And yet they're willing to go to work and sort of sell their souls to someone else and just be an employee and sort of look at it like a job from an employee. And like you said earlier, I don't believe it's a job and, and, and I really don't even believe it's a career. It's a calling. And they're surrendering their calling to hospital health systems that are willing to employ them and dangle some carrots in front of them. And so that's the whole mindset that administrators have sold us is, Hey, doctor, don't worry about anything. Let us worry about everything. Just show up in good care of your patients. And it's bred a whole generation of physicians that have an employee mindset. So the idea of becoming an owner instead of an employee, it is a bit for them. Gotcha. Yeah, and I, I would completely agree there that this notion of, hey, it's okay to go into independent practice is something that 
it's just nobody talks about it anymore in the medical schools or residency programs or that younger generation of physicians. They think, well, that's an extinct way of doing business. That's not going to be viable for me. Where's my paycheck type of thinking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we're going to pause right there and take a quick break and hear from our sponsors, the Free Market Medical Association. Dr. Rickner, we'll be back. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Healthcare Americana. We're joined today by Dr. Kyle Rickner of Primary Health Partners. Now, Dr. Rickner, you mentioned earlier in the episode that your practice and your company is doing business with local companies and you're growing practices, you're setting up multi-locations to take down larger and larger employers. Tell us a little bit about that and describe these companies that you're working with today. We started out with smaller companies, so there's really a, a few different categories. There are smaller ones that actually offer no health plan to the employees, and so the employees, by working there, get no health benefits, and so direct primary care is offered to them as um, at least having some access to health care. In that market, the owners do see that it increases presenteeism and decreases absenteeism for um, uh, their employees, and they, they have a healthier, happier employee population. And then we began to approach larger groups that already have a health plan, and that is a much more complicated process. When you're talking with larger groups, you have people that live in multiple locations, and employers want to make sure that you have access to them. So that's when we began to strategically uh, expand so that we would have availability. You know, as a matter of fact, today we met with a banking entity that is um, multiple branches around our area and a fairly large employer. And one of their key questions is, well, what kind of capacity do you have? Because they understand the model that what makes it work is each physician has basically a, a capitated number of people to take care of. And that's what allows for the accessibility. So, we have gotten that question, so we had to actually create the space, and that's what we did with our location. So we have clients in banking. We have clients in higher education. We have clients in oil field uh, production services, So, and we're, we're looking at uh, multiple other ones of, of higher education and then even a, uh, a multi-site church that's, that's fairly large. Um, so... There's a lot of opportunity. Um, really, the process is just getting the word out there and to actually integrate what you do into their already existing health plan or even harder to have them sort of blow up the status quo and are they willing to look at a redo and a plan design that puts DPC at the middle of it. Right. I can imagine. And it's absolutely fantastic to hear the breadth of companies that you're working with. So you mentioned this a little bit, but I wanted to expand on it. Um, how are you finding these companies? Are they coming knocking on your door saying, hey, I've heard all about you. How do I get in? So, you know, the conduit to companies' health plans, the, the mediator is the brokers. And that's been a dirty word 
for a long time because their status quo way of doing business, unfortunately, is not very helpful to self-funded companies at all and not necessarily friendly for the employees. So we have begun to, and we have actually used the Free Market Medical Association as a vehicle to establish relationships with brokers that are free market minded. And then also through a local TPA that works with nothing but exclusively self-funded companies, they realized that what we brought to the table would be a way to improve the health plans that they already administer for their clients. And so those were relationships that we leveraged and has created our first opportunities for us. Oh, that's great. So using those relationships that you might not uh, like them in a past life, but at this point, they can, they can really yield some, some attractive uh, yeah. benefits from you, huh? That's right. Yeah, I like that. Brokers, uh, they get a bad rap, you know, especially in this industry, but there are some, some people out there who are willing to do the right thing, and, and they are actually a lot of fun to work with because they actually get to help people, which is uh, new to that type of industry for sure. Wanted to expand. So you're working with bigger and bigger companies, again, in a wide array of industries. And you mentioned to me, you had just launched more of what I'm going to call a custom health plan built around DPC. Tell us a little bit more about that. So we worked for almost a year with um, the TPA entity that I mentioned for us to actually integrate into a health plan and become part of a health plan so that not the employer but the health plan would pay the DPC benefit. That's an important distinction because this health plan, like some other health plans, are made up of multiple employers. And so the employers come on and and it's really kind of an association health plan. It's been around for nearly three decades and has 6,500 total lives within that plan. And so it required a redo of plan language and then the administrative back office work in order to handle the administration because this does not fit into or plug into their normal way of administering a health plan. But they were motivated to get it done. We were motivated to get it done. And our technology partners were really helpful and motivated to come into that space. And it was really a beautiful thing, Chris, to watch those entities come together, which is very unique at best, and cooperate and create something that had never been created before. So there are health plans that have been built by creative brokers that have DPC at the middle. However, I'm not aware of one that had been so large and in existence for so long, and this be completely incorporated into it. So it was an exciting process. We're just getting that off the ground, and we're doing that, you know, in a step-by-step way because we we think that what we're doing has implications for other DPCs around the country. We want to do it right so that the story can be duplicated and shared. Yeah, I mean, this is something to me strikes me as groundbreaking uh, within this space. And it has to be attractive to other companies that you're telling us about or other partners that you're working with. When you tell them about this, I mean, do their draws hit the floor when you explain what this is? Well, it's a paradigm shift. Um, a lot of them to be able to think about this in a different way. Again, there's sort of that learning curve. I'm surprised that people are getting it quicker and quicker. And when I say people, I mean brokers, 
company owners and even HR directors at companies. That's really a hard one because they've really only known one way to do business for so long. I mean, the system has just been held hostage, if you will, by the third-party payers and the TPA administrators and the pharmacy benefit managers and all these people who have their hands in the pie and want to get a piece of it. And they've created this complex system that is just a lose-lose for everybody. So this is sort of turning things upside down. And we're excited to be part of what I think is truly a healthcare revolution. I'm personally excited to see how far you guys can take this type of plan. So I'm going to be listening with all my antenna up as well. But nice little segue there to the national scene, because you mentioned a lot of different groups that uh, I'm not going to say are working against DPC, but have contributed to a lot of the bad habits that we see in the market right now that physicians such as yourself are trying to correct. So looking at the national scene, all right, so switch hats from your, your local physician, local businessman up to national policy type of advisor uh, role, what is standing in the way of more physicians entering into DPC practices? So there really hasn't been the incentive to do so. We are putting this entirely on the shoulder of the individual physician to absolutely do it on their own. There really hasn't been supportive infrastructure and the system itself does not support the transition. So that physician has to be willing to be a physician that swims upstream. You know, anytime there's a, a change in, in culture, or society, or a way of doing business, you've always got these, these early adopters that come on, and they're the ones that are willing to take everything on. And, and it really does take time for that, that curve to change where it becomes mainstream. And I think that having an infrastructure or a um, mechanism of support that allows physicians to step into it is going to be a key thing. And, and I, let me give you a couple examples from the national scene. It, it's very exciting that uh, we in the state of Oklahoma uh, are looking at um, health care reform. And through state-administered Medicaid plan changes, and there's even been some recent changes coming down from CMS on some programs that they are proposing that could actually incentivize physicians to head into the direct care space because the payment model for those patients will already be in existence. And that's the difference is getting the payment model or the business already there waiting for the physicians. And so I think doing some changes on a national level will be helpful in that way. The second piece of things that we in the DPC community have been working on forever is the very outdated IRS code that does not allow the use of HSA funds for direct primary care. That has bipartisan support and uh, has been worked on. Unfortunately, it keeps having things added to it that has been holding it up. So when that happens, uh, we are very aware of some local partners that are businesses that would very much like for us to be part of their health plan. However, they view the HSA benefit as a great thing for their employees and they don't want to pull that plug on them. And so we have business that we know would come through our doors if the HSA legislation would change. So I think on a national level, that could be a game changer. And I, I don't think it's a matter of if that's going to happen. I think it's a matter of, of when it happens. I think the third thing is there's, there's a lot of big players, the big businesses in this country 
that are fully funded, fully self-funded businesses that have tens of thousands of employees and they're looking for creative solutions. And if they're willing to prop up the direct primary care model within their employee space, that could also be a game changer. We're, we're aware of uh, companies like Paladino who've done a lot of employer space clinics. However, there has not been one that has been on a national level that's, that's sort of a sponsored sponsor from a large corporation. Again, that would put the business there for the doctors to come to instead of making the doctors there for the business to come to them. Yeah, so it switch it from more of the supply side to the demand side, switch the curve up, like you mentioned a little bit earlier there. Last question for you here, uh, looking into your crystal ball, where do you see the healthcare industry going in the next five, 10 years? What's it look like from your point of view? Well, I think all of us that are doing what we do are in agreement that the healthcare system is broken and it is on an unsustainable trajectory. We're going to surpass 19% of GDP this year and exceed $1.3 million in healthcare spending. And that is a growth up from barely 5% in 1960. And around the world, industrialized countries are, are more like at 10 or 11%. So we're spending a lot more money and not necessarily improving outcomes. So as, as a whole, the healthcare system is broke. So the status quo is not okay. And I don't um, personally believe that the change of the status quo is going to come through purely legislative change in Washington. And I certainly am not looking for third-party payers, um, the BUCAs, uh, Blue Cross United, Cigna, mm -hmm. that group, to, to make changes that are going to make a difference in healthcare. And I'm certainly not looking for our hospital administrators to be creative and do that. So to me, that leaves the, the physician group, that, that leaves the, um, the providers of healthcare, the, the sellers of healthcare in the market to actually be the, the, um, the people that are there to make the change, the agents of change, if you will. If we're willing to do that, we're going to see that these creative market plans are going to be out there because the people that are losing right now are um, the employers that 75% of Americans get their care through, through an employer, and they are the ones that are spending in so much money. And when people own businesses, they are willing to make changes to look and see how they can keep their business going or make it more profitable. So I think the employer community is going to be an agent of change. And when that community pairs with the physicians who are willing to be agents of change, I think that's going to start to turn that cost curve down in medicine and the free market will ultimately be the vehicle that they all use that will hopefully create some change, turn this cost curve down, bring a more common sense back to this chaos that's medicine, make it more simple and get rid of these erroneous charges that are coming out of, of system. We all have our stories about how much stuff costs and I always joke about selling the $150,000 Honda Accord to someone. It's a good car and it has great value and it runs good and has, well, how much are you willing to pay? And they just, um, so these erroneous charges, and I'm hoping that possibly that the legislation to direct for price transparency can be a game changer at the healthcare system. We cannot keep rewarding healthcare systems for just charging whatever they want right. and having backroom deals with third-party payers. So I know that's a 
complicated answer, but that was a very complicated question that you asked. <laughs> no easy questions here on this podcast. No easy questions whatsoever. We don't let anybody off the hook, that's for sure. Um, and, I, and I'm going to you know, echo your sentiment there that I think the free market and individual physicians and those working to support them are going to be the real catalyst to this movement. I personally look at Washington and kind of say, hey, don't screw this thing up anymore. But if they want to do some positive things, then you know what? I'm going to be all for it. Dr. Richter, thanks for joining us on this episode. Obviously, the more we discuss these stories, the more people will see that we can actually fix this healthcare system and we can do it by working with smart people like yourself. So thanks again for joining us and taking the time to talk with us. Chris, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Healthcare Americana. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podchaser, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your friends and colleagues to download and listen to all Healthcare Americana shows at healthcareamericana.com. This episode was produced by iPodcast Pro. Capture your story, iPodcastPro.com.